If you have your Bibles, I encourage you, open up to Haggai chapter 2. This is our last week in our study of the book of Haggai, and we're going to be reading verses 20 through 23. Also, if you do not have a Bible, maybe you don't even know what a Bible is, we have some in the tables in the back in our lobby. So as you enter these back, exit these back doors, there's a table under our connection tables. Go pick up a Bible. We want to give that away to you, read it, bring it home with you. And with that, let's open up God's word. This is Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. This is the word of God. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of kingdoms and of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, as we begin this morning, I want to tell you about a book that has meant a tremendous amount to me in my life. This is a book that I've leaned on in times of hardship. I've relied on it in times of frustration and doubt. I've poured over it in situations where I just felt completely over my head. And it's helped me through one of the most challenging times in my life. You know what book I'm talking about, don't you? Right? I see your head's nodding. That's right. It's what to expect when you're expecting. You know that book I'm talking about? Written by Heidi Murkoff, Sharon Maisel. It's in his fourth edition, now over like 600 pages long. It is the authority on all things pregnancy. If your wife is pregnant, men, I highly encourage you, get this book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. No matter what, what thing your wife goes through, it could be swollen ankles, the dangers of mercury, there are the dangers of mercury and tuna. It could be pre-labor, false labor, or real labor. This is the authority that we have to look to when our wives are pregnant. And, and here's the point. It is super helpful to know what to expect, isn't it? It's helpful to know what's coming down the pipe. It's helpful to know what's next in life. If I know what to expect when my wife's pregnant, if I know to expect midnight cravings, then I'm going to leave my keys on my bedside table so I can make a Taco Bell run at 12 <laughs> o'clock, right? If I know what Braxton Hicks contractions are, I'm not going to freak out when my wife has contractions at 20 weeks. And so I want to ask you this. If God showed you what was next, how would you change your life? If God told you where history was going, if God told you where everything in your life, all of history was going to end, how would you change your life in response? Now I mention that because that's exactly what God does with Zerubbabel. Remember that man, Zerubbabel? God approaches him through the prophet Haggai and he shows him what is next. In verse 20, we see that the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, which means it's still the ninth month in the year 520 BC. But we all know, right, through our study of Haggai so far, that the story didn't start here. This isn't where the Bible starts. In fact, the entire Bible is a story that starts all the way back in the beginning. And this is helpful for us, right? Because oftentimes I know I fight this temptation. I want to look at the Bible as if it's an encyclopedia, okay? 
I have a question like, what does the Bible say about angels? Or what should I do when my kids just won't take a nap? And so we think, you know, hey, I'll just go to the index and I'll look up, okay, naps, naps. And then infants, okay, yeah, oh, oh, right, Leviticus 24. All right, here we go. And the point is this. The Bible, though, is much less an encyclopedia or an instruction manual. We've seen this through Haggai. It's a story. And it's a story that starts in the beginning. And one way I want you to think about this story is it's a story of a kingdom. Okay? God created Adam, and we're told that Adam, his first creation made in his image, had dominion over the entire earth. That word dominion is a royal term. It means he had reign and rule over creation. But there was an enemy to this kingdom, wasn't there? There was a creature in the garden, a serpent known as Satan, who tempted Adam and Eve and brought them into sin. So now, in a very real way, Satan has dominion over this earth. Instead of humankind ruling with godly power, we now rule and are ruled by the influence of darkness. And despite Satan's blow, we see that God made a promise to Adam that he was one day going to send a deliverer. It was a promise that one day a descendant from Adam would destroy Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And the Bible has a term for this. It's called a Messiah. It's God's true king. It's an anointed one to succeed where Adam failed and defeat Satan and establish God's kingdom on earth. C.S. Lewis, who's the children's writer, I think he has the perfect way of describing our world in relation to the Bible. He puts it this way. He said, when you look at the world, you have to view it from the lens of this, that we live in enemy-occupied territory. That this world is in a very real way under the persuasion and under the reign and rule of the evil one. So the question of the entire Old Testament, where the story is going is, where is the king? Where is God's Messiah? And when will God reestablish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? And, and we get hints as to what this king is going to look like. Maybe the most clear hint that we get comes from the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel was a book written to describe the life of the king David. David was the king of Israel. And God approached David and gave him this promise. He told him these words. He said, When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So what he's saying is, a descendant from David is going to be the true king. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this descendant from David is going to establish an eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Meaning, he will be the son of David, the son of God, who will establish the kingdom of God here on earth. And, and just as we kind of get this picture, right, this is kind of like a puzzle, okay? You know when you're doing a puzzle and you don't have the box top, every single puzzle piece that you place down, you start to get a better appreciation. Oh, what could this be? It could be a tiger or, you know, it could be a giraffe. It looks like that's over there. Oh, it must be a zoo. Well, what God is showing us, once this picture becomes clear of who his Messiah is going to be, we quickly realize hey, this isn't going to be David. David, we see immediately after God gives him this promise that he commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba and in order to cover up his adultery, he commits murder. And then we know it's not going to be his son Solomon because Solomon, even though he created this big temple and this vast kingdom, we see immediately that he turns away from God to worship idols 
Solomon's son fares no better. His name's Rehoboam. And actually under him, the kingdom of Israel splits from Israel in the north and then Judah in the south. So the rest of the Old Testament, the history of the Bible is the story of kings rising and falling. Kings rising and falling. Kings rising and falling. And you know you're reading the Old Testament right if you start asking the question, what on earth is wrong with these people? What is the deal with these kings? When will they learn? When will they finally figure it out? I think uh, Bono, you know, the lead singer of U2, puts it perfectly. When you read the Old Testament, you think of it this way. The Old Testament is a lot like an action movie. Blood, car chases, evacuations, a lot of special effects, seas dividing, mass murder, adultery. The children of God are running amok. They're wayward. And maybe that's why it's so relatable, right? See, the story of the Bible is not heroes to emulate, but it's a story of failure after failure of failure. People from Adam, people from David, all failing. And the question you should be asking is, where is the true king? Where is this deliverer? God, have you given up on your promises? And as these kings fail, we see this really deeply symbolic sign from this prophet known as Jeremiah. Jeremiah puts it this way, and you have to hear these words. Jeremiah comes to the king during the time, right before they were about to be exiled into Babylon, and he says these words, As I live, declares the Lord, though Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. See, the signet ring in the ancient world was the sign of divine authority. It was the sign when a king would make a decree and he would put a law into place. It was the thing that he used for his signature to say, this is my word. And what he was saying of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, you were like a signet ring on my hand. You were my authority on earth. And what he's saying now is, Jeconiah, because you guys have rebelled against me and failed so much, I'm going to throw you off of my finger. That's exactly what happened in 586. The people of Judah were exiled and taken in to Babylon, and the story was over. And so now you're asking, what on earth does this have to do with Haggai? And here's the point. If you have Haggai in front of you, in verse 21, notice who Haggai is speaking to. He says these words, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Who is Zerubbabel? Well, we saw earlier in our study that he was the son of Shiltiel. And we don't know much about Shiltiel other than his dad was Jeconiah. Jeconiah, the same one who God said, I will throw you off my hand. So who is Haggai speaking to? He's speaking to royal blood. He's speaking to one who is from the line of David. And Haggai comes to Zerubbabel and shows him, here's what's next. I want to show you Zerubbabel what's coming down the pipe. This is what God's going to do in Judah. This is what he's going to do on earth. And so he gives us two clues as to what's going to come, two clues as to what's next. He says, first, there is going to be a great reversal, a great reversal. And the second thing he says is there is going to be a king who is restored. So let's look at the first point there, that there is going to be a great reversal. We see it beginning in verse 21. God says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. A couple of years ago, it was during Labor Day weekend. 
I got violently sick and I was up in the middle of the night and I do what everybody does when they're violently sick in the middle of the night. You watch PBS or some show that you never watched before, ever, right? And I was watching this show on the Pentagon and it was the story of the Pentagon on September 11th. And I had seen plenty of stuff on the Twin Towers and the World Trade Center. I'd never seen anything on the Pentagon before. So I was really interested and I started watching. And it was a story of these first responders who were sent into the Pentagon to try and save people. And there's this one story that a lot of people don't know much about, but these first responders, some of them had to go so deep into the Pentagon that they found themselves in the inner courtyard in order to save people. Now, in order to get to that inner courtyard of the Pentagon, it takes about 25, 30 minutes because the Pentagon is just so large. And there's this story of one first responder, how he got to the center, into the courtyard, and he heard over his radio, there's an inbound plane and it's 15 minutes away. And so he had... He had already known, he put the pieces together, there were two planes that went into the World Trade Center. There must be two planes coming here to the Pentagon. So we knew he, there's no way he could make it out of the Pentagon alive. So as time goes by and he's trying to save people and yell at them, telling them to get out, he realizes that the countdown's on, it's about five minutes, and he starts to hear the low rumble of a plane in the distance. And as he hears this low rumble that he did the very first thing that came instinctually to him, he dropped to his knees and he lifted his hands into the air and he just started to pray that God would save him. And as he hears the rumblings get closer, he's praying more fervently and the rumblings get closer and closer until finally it's unbearable and he looks up and he sees a jet that says U.S. Navy flying overhead. And it's interesting, isn't it? See, we instinctively know that the only one powerful enough, when we are faced with that situation, we know that there is only one power strong enough to actually save us in that situation. No false religion that tells you to look inwardly and find inward peace is ever going to have the power to save you from that situation. No amount of wealth that we accumulate for ourselves is going to help us in that situation. On that kind of day, the power of God is actually displayed. And we finally realize that the power of this world has absolutely no ability to save us. Verses 21, Haggai tells this king, Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, he is saying he is going to shake this world. And we, we saw what this was about a couple of weeks ago, right? This was an imagery of God being like a farmer who tosses wheat into the air and anything that isn't wheat is blown away. So that which is heavy enough, that which is really wanted is the only thing that remains. And what God is saying is one day he is going to grab this earth and he is going to shake it of every false power that exists in this world. And it's important to realize this is not just physical kingdoms, right? In the Bible, anything that stands in defiance to God's kingdom is in a sense an instrument of the kingdom of darkness. And we have to realize this because our world is alive with power set in defiance to God's kingdom. Whenever an employer tells you and encourages you to make work the most important priority in your life, they are infringing on the kingdom of God. God alone has that authority. When a peer group insists that I join them and indulge in ungodliness or illicit sex or pride, they are infringing on God's kingdom. Anytime that our families, even good things, right, demand that we are the most important thing in their life, they are in defiance of God and they are infringing upon God's kingdom. Even though these are good things, some of them, 
When they become ultimate things, they begin to infringe on God's territory and they begin to infringe on God's kingdom. In other words, Satan uses these things to turn these good instruments into instruments for the kingdom of darkness. And Haggai tells Zerubbabel here, doesn't he? He says, the day is coming when God will bring this great reversal. He's going to destroy the strength of kingdoms and nations, overthrow chariots and riders. Does that language sound familiar? Because we started this worship service with Exodus chapter 15, the song of Moses, when God took the Egyptians and cast them into the sea. And he overthrew the Pharaoh's armies and his chariots and the horses and their riders. So God is saying that same sort of thing is happening. God will one day take not just Pharaoh and Egypt, but he's going to take the whole earth and he's going to shake it of the false power and expose it for what it really is. So now we have to ask the question, all right, this is, this is forward-looking prophecy, okay? And we have to ask the question, when will this prophecy happen? When will God actually bring his kingdom? And we've said that generally when the Bible talks about prophecy, it talks about it as if it could happen today, that means in Zerubbabel's time, or it could have happened during the first coming of Jesus, or it could happen in the second coming of Jesus. Jesus in his first coming, do you know the first words that he gave for his ministry when it began? It was the kingdom of God is at hand. See, Jesus, when he came and he took on human flesh, he actually brought the kingdom of heaven down to earth. And we see what the kingdom does, right? In the kingdom, sin, sinners are forgiven. In the kingdom, the sick are healed. In the kingdom, demons are cast out. God's kingdom is already present on earth as we speak. Jesus, by his death on the cross, literally shook the heavens and the earth. He grabbed the kingdom of darkness held by Satan and he shook it and exposed it for the false power that it was. Isn't that interesting? Because even Jesus, when he was crucified, you remember what happened. There was an earthquake that shook and the sun in the sky, even though it was noonday, became dark and black. But we all realize this, right? That Satan's kingdom hasn't fully been defeated, has it? Many of us in this room are suffering from cancer. Many of us in this room are suffering from depression and we can't even get out of bed in the morning sometimes. Many of us in this room are suffering from tremendous hardship. So we know Satan's kingdom has not finally been defeated. And that's why when the New Testament actually mentions these verses right here, it does so in the book of Hebrews. And it talks about it like this. The author says, at that time, the voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So you see what God is saying. God is saying here that there is still a day to come when God will bring his kingdom in full and he will shake the heavens and the earth and the only thing that will remain is God's kingdom. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God because he knew it's the only thing that would be permanent. It's the only power that will remain. You've probably seen, you know, those pictures or those, those, those phrases that go around on, you know, Facebook or Instagram, and it says things like, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You ever seen that? And the idea is that no matter what we accumulate in this life for security and put our hope in in this life, any kingdom that we put our hope in here, it cannot be taken with us. The same thing is true with our relationships. No relationship that we build on earth, if it's not rooted in God's kingdom, will endure 
when Jesus comes again. So everything we place our hope and security in other than God's kingdom will be shaken. That is the end that Haggai wants to show Zerubbabel here. And now, I used to do this uh, thing with my youth students. I told you I used to be a youth pastor back in Nashville. And before we ever started a semester, like a Bible study or a small group, what I would do is I would ask them, hey, what is one thing that you're hoping for in this year to come? And they would say things like, oh, I hope to make the soccer team. I hope to get a good score on the ACT. And then every semester I'd pull one or two of the students aside and I'd say, hey, you know, Cooper, you said you really wanted a good score on the ACT. Can I ask you, what will you get if you get a good score on the ACT? And his response was, well, then I'll be able to get into the good school that I want to get into. He wanted to get into Alabama, right? (laughs) Sorry for any Alabama grads. Sorry. (laughs) That was a joke, I promise. You guys are good at football. You got that, okay? Anyway, I'll I'll be able to get into Alabama. Well, when you get into Alabama, what will that give you? Oh, well, I'll be able to get a good job. When you get a good job, what will that get you? Oh, well, I'll be able to have a good wife. When you have a good wife, what will that get you? Well, I'll be able to have a good child, a good family. And I said, you know, Cooper, is, is there any sense in which whatever you're pursuing right now, do you think that God might have something better in store than just the comfort and security of a good family and a good wife and a good ACT score? And see, Haggai's message is the same for Zerubbabel. If you want true hope and true stability, Zerubbabel, you do not seek it in the kingdoms of this world. None of it will last. He tells Zerubbabel here, hey, look, look at who brought you into exile, the Babylonian Empire. And then they were defeated by the Persian Empire, and the Persian Empire was defeated by the Greek Empire, and the Greek Empire was defeated by the Roman Empire, and then the Byzantine Empire came up, and then the Ottoman Empire, and then the English Empire, and then we could probably say today the American or the United States of America Empire. None of these things will last. Our security, our hope, none of it will last if it's rooted in the kingdoms of this world. Not even the kingdom of darkness will last. The only true hope and security is found in God's kingdom. God will shake, listen to this, God will shake our political party. He will. God will shake our 401ks. God will shake any ideology that we believe in that is not rooted in God's word. God will shake our beauty if that's what we put our investment, our hope, and our security in. I'm thinking about investments right now because we, we have two kids on the way and I'm thinking about setting up college savings accounts, right? And so I'm thinking, all right, I got to set up a college savings account and I got to put this much money in and I got to accumulate this much so that, you know, we can pay for half a semester by the time it's 20, whatever. <laughs> and the point is this, right? God is, God is telling Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, you can invest in two kingdoms. You can invest in the kingdoms of this world in the rule and in the authority of darkness, or you can invest in God's kingdom. Only one's going to endure. Only one is going to have a return on investment when you try and pull it out on that last day. It's not going to be like my college savings accounts. Only God's kingdom will remain. Not one thing will remain. And only one thing is certain. One thing is certain in this. A day is coming. A day is coming when God just as Jesus in his first coming shook the kingdom of darkness and exposed its falsehood God will one day come and shake the kingdoms of this world. Did you notice how the kingdoms of this world are going down? It was in verse 22, really subtle. But he put it this way. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. How are the kingdoms of this world going down? Self-destruction. 
self-destruction. You guys uh, on your iPhones, you know, if you put in too many false passwords, you know how it locks up for thousands of years, you can actually set it and program it too, that it's going to delete everything on your phone if the password is entered incorrectly too many times. God says that's what's going to happen. Ultimately, this world is going to self-destruct. Everything we put our hope and security in, whether it's our beauty, our 401k, our ideologies, they are going to self-destruct because they were never meant to last. Only God's kingdom was meant to last. Hope in God. That's the message Haggai gives Zerubbabel here. Hope in God. Hope in God's kingdom. We can't see God's kingdom right now, but God is reigning He is ruling and all history is going to one definitive point when God will grab the heavens and the earth and he will shake them. Hope in God. There is a great reversal coming. It started with Jesus at his first coming and it will be brought to completion and in full in his second coming. The second thing that Zerubbabel is promised here. He's also promised that the king will be restored. And we see that beginning in verse 23. In verse 23, Haggai says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Remember signet ring? Remember that, what, what that was? What God is saying is, Zerubbabel, I cast off your grandfather, but you are my chosen signet ring. Through you, one of your descendants will restore the promised king. Just wait, Zerubbabel. You might just be the governor of Judah in the midst of the largest empire in the world. You might be a small fish in a big pond right now, but from you, the king of the world is coming. I'm going to send my Messiah, my coming king, and he will come through your line. You know, Throughout this study, I've had you start in the book of Matthew, and this is just for location reasons, right? You start in the book of Matthew, and you work two books back, and you find Haggai. Well, if you have your Bibles and you flip open to Matthew, they're probably the most electrifying words that start out the New Testament. You know what they are? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it continues... Verse 12, it says, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel. See, God is controlling history past to this time here and controlling it to history to come. And the genealogy continues. We're told that Joseph was the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a messianic title. It means Messiah. Do you see what Matthew's saying? These are the most electrifying words of the Bible. 500 years later, here is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the promised Messiah and king, the son of God. Haggai. Haggai said this 500 years before. Remember, Haggai said Jesus is the true temple, right? He's the true dwelling place of God on earth. Jesus is the true priest who offers the perfect offering that none of us could offer. He offers the perfect sacrifice, his own blood for our sins. He's the cornerstone upon which God is creating a new humanity. And here, Jesus is the true king. I saw a church bulletin recently. This is kind of funny. It was a misprint, but they actually didn't catch it in time. It said, God resigns. It was supposed to say, God reigns. 
friends, you know. <laughs> we feel that way sometimes, don't we? We feel that way sometimes. God, what are you doing? My life feels like Zerubbabel's. I live in a kingdom that doesn't have any walls, 50,000 people, opposition on every single side. But here's what you have to see. Jesus is the true king promised in all of the Old Testament, and he is the one who is going to return. Jesus is the true king, and I have to tell you this. This is only good news to you. This is only good news to you if you put your hope and your security in Jesus. Otherwise, this is very much bad news. In the Bible, when it talks about the day of the Lord coming, the day of the Lord, Amos, he talks about it, another prophet of the Old Testament. He says it's a day of darkness. It's not a day of light. It's as if you run away from a bear to engage a lion. Jesus in his first coming, right, it's interesting, he came as nobody expected. Jesus in his first coming didn't come to bring war. He came to bring peace. He came not to take a throne, but to ascend a cross. Not to bring a sword, but to shed his own blood on the cross. Not to bring punishment, but to set prisoners free. He did the exact opposite of what everybody expected him to do. Anybody in here Seinfeld fans? I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. Remember when George, George is one of the main characters, he does nothing right in life. So he decides one day, all right, I've done nothing right to this point. I'm going to try the exact opposite of everything I've tried in life. So instead of telling people he's an architect, which is a lie, he starts telling people he's unemployed. Instead of telling people he lives in this nice apartment, he starts telling them he lives with his parents. He even changes his lunch. Instead of getting a tuna salad on toast with a cup of decaf, he gets a chicken salad on rye, untoasted with a cup of tea. And here's the thing. Jesus is the same. Jesus is the exact opposite of a king and a Messiah that people were expecting. People expected the Messiah would immediately come and overthrow the Roman Empire, restore this earth, come and destroy all earthly powers. But Jesus had to come first and destroy a greater kingdom. See, as many threats as there are to the United States, whether it be North Korea or Iran, any foreign power, there is a greater kingdom at work in the world. It is the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of sin. The Bible says we have three enemies, three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Peter says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And to be honest, I, I sometimes just don't believe that. Many, many of you probably don't believe that either. We say things like the devil, like that sounds so... Middle Ages or something like that. You expect me to believe in somebody with like two horns and a long tail with a big scepter? But here's the thing, you guys. Jesus, you know, most, it's really interesting. Most people think Jesus is just a great teacher. You know, one of Jesus' central teachings in the Bible is about Satan. You may not think about Satan, but I can guarantee you this. Satan thinks about you. He seeks about you. He thinks about you. This is the opponent to God's kingdom. This is the opponent to God's advance in the world. See, Jesus entered history in his first coming as the suffering king to come as nobody expected so that we could be freed from the kingdom of darkness, freed from the slavery to our sin, free to our rebellion against God so that when he comes a second time, we will be on the other end of the battle line. We will be on Jesus's 
king, we will be in Jesus' kingdom on his team. C.S. Lewis, remember he said that this is enemy-occupied territory. He said, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in the great campaign of sabotage. Friends, if you place your hope and your security in anything but this king, then Jesus in his second coming will bring judgment and overthrow us along with the nations, the thrones, the false powers of this world. Unless we embrace Jesus as our king, submitting our lives to him as our sacrifice, the king who came and died, then we, like the thrones of this earth, will be overthrown and destroyed. You know what hung on the cross over Jesus? It was the charge against him. Do you remember what it was? King of the Jews. We have to embrace this suffering king, this suffering Messiah, if we ever expect to stand in his kingdom when he comes again. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? See, Jesus as a king commands us to respond in one way. I'll put it in the words of Tim Keller. He said, Jesus is both the rest and the storm, both the victim and the wielder of the flaming sword. And you must reject him on the basis of both. Either you'll have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. One thing you can't do is say, what an interesting guy. Friends, if you think Jesus is an interesting fellow, if you think his teaching is something to pontificate about, or debate back and forth, you're missing the message. The message is this, repent and believe in Jesus Christ as your king, the suffering king who came and bled and died so that you could be called out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's actually one of the ways Jesus illustrated this is he gave us this table. Jesus at this table told us that he is the king and he's inviting us as his subjects as his citizens in his kingdom and he is telling us I'm giving you this bread as a living representation that my body as the king of the universe was given not to ascend a throne of this earth to take earthly power but to come and destroy the power of the kingdom of darkness and Jesus also said we as rebels need forgiveness to enter this kingdom So Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Meaning he was going to shed his blood so that we might find forgiveness of sins in him and him alone. So that when he comes again, we might enter into his kingdom. 